Today we're going to examine uh, an historical event that's typically overlooked in the Christian story. And it's the burial of Jesus. The burial of Jesus. And it's really unfortunate that this part of the story is overlooked. On the board over here on the wall, in summary of Paul's explicit teaching on the gospel, we've highlighted the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus for our sins. But I'm kind of kicking myself a little bit <laughs> for not adding in between those two things the burial of Jesus. It's actually pretty darn significant. So I'm kicking myself a little bit. We'll just have to imagine it on the board over there. Uh, but Paul actually does include it in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. The burial of Jesus has many profound things to teach us. And so let's go there together, shall we? If you're new with us, for several months now we've been going verse by verse through Mark's gospel. And today we come to Mark chapter 15, and we're going to look at verses 39 through 47. 39 through 47. If you don't have your Bible with you today, the verses will be on the screen behind me. Starting with verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and of Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So, as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. This is God's word. Okay, so the burial story of Jesus reveals three amazing truths. Number one in your outline. The first truth this story shows us is that the resurrection is true. The resurrection is true. And you say, now, wait a minute. How could the burial of Jesus show us that the resurrection is true? Well, let's take a look here. There's two subpoints under this heading. Let's, the first one, let's look at verse 47. Verse 47. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Now, as we said last week, if you were here, one of the strongest pieces of evidence that the gospel accounts are historically accurate is the inclusion of women at all three main events of Christianity. Okay? All three main events. The death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So if you were inventing a story about Jesus out of thin air in the first century, you would never invent a story where women are the main characters at the three main events of your religion. You would never do that. Why not? Because no one would believe you. 
No one will believe you. Women were considered to be so untrustworthy in the first century that their testimony wasn't even allowed in a court of law. It wasn't even allowed. So if 10 women witnessed a murder, but there was no men there, the murderer gets off because the women's testimony are not even admissible in court. So Dr. Michael Green, in his commentary on the burial of Jesus, says this, quote, This is the supreme irony, the supreme humor, and the supreme surprise of Almighty God. That when he does his greatest act since the creation of the world in raising his son from the dead, he attests it through the lips of those who are the most widely discounted in the world. End quote. Our God's pretty awesome. <laughs> See, the resurrection of Jesus, the story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ comes to us through the testimony of women. Pretty amazing. That's subpoint number one. Subpoint number two, let's look at verse 43. Verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Now, I hope you see how amazing it is that we actually know who buried Jesus. Like, this is pretty amazing. Virtually all scholars, even atheist and Jewish New Testament scholars, agree that Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus in his family tomb. It's virtually unanimously agreed upon by scholars. That's pretty incredible because they don't agree, unanimously agree on hardly anything. But they almost totally agree that it was Joseph of Arimathea that buried Jesus. Now, why are scholars so convinced? Why are they so convinced? Now, what many Christians don't realize is that Mark did not compose his gospel out of whole cloth. Okay? He appears to have drawn upon a prior source for Jesus' passion. He appears to have drawn upon uh, another writing for Jesus' final week, his suffering and his death. Now, why do scholars think that? Well, when you read the Gospel of Mark, you'll find that it mostly consists of a series of unconnected anecdotes, kind of like beads on a string, and they are not always chronologically arranged, okay? If you've been with us over this series, you'll see that. You would have seen that. A lot of Mark's stories are disconnected from one another. They're not chronologically arranged. But when it comes to the final week of Jesus' life, we do find a continuous chronological account of his activities, arrest, trial, condemnation, and death. Scholars therefore think that Mark drew upon a pre-Markan passion story to end his gospel. And it's possibly written by, well, we don't know, maybe one of the other disciples. We don't know. But it's likely he drew upon another source for the end of his gospel, at least partially. Now, interestingly, this pre-Markan passion source very likely included the account of Jesus' burial by Joseph in the tomb and the women's discovery of the empty tomb. Since Mark is already the earliest of the Gospels, this is extraordinarily significant, okay? 
Mark is likely written about somewhere between 50 and 60 AD. So Mark, Mark's gospel itself is pretty early. But that means the pre-Mark and Passion story is even earlier. Okay? It is extremely early. An extremely early source, which is very valuable for our reconstruction of the true fate of Jesus of Nazareth, including his burial and his empty tomb. So that means this passion story that we are reading about, about his suffering, about his death, about his burial, about his crucifixion, this was written and circulated well within the lifetimes of the eyewitnesses. Well within the lifetimes of the eyewitnesses. Now this is pretty incredible when you think about it. Because if the story is completely made up, okay, just inventing it out of whole cloth, if the story is made up, then there will be plenty of people at this time to stand up and call bull. Right? They'll stand up, raise their hand and say, nope, it did not happen that way. I was there. Jesus did not die by crucifixion. Jesus was not buried in the, in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And he certainly did not rise from the dead. I saw him die, and I can show you where his tomb is. I can show you where his body still lays. There would be thousands of people like that, okay? When Mark's gospel is circulating and when the pre-Markan story is circulating, plenty of people stand up and call bull. But that's not what happened, is it? Nope. What happened instead was thousands and thousands of Jews in the first century, in Jerusalem, in Judea, suddenly and unexpectedly abandoned their long Jewish heritage and converted to Christianity, even under the threat of crucifixion themselves. Why? Why would they do that? Because the story is true. Because the story's true. <laughs> That's why they were willing to go to the cross. Them and their families and even their children were willing to go to the cross because the story's true. They were eyewitnesses to these events. That's point number one. Point number two that the burial story teaches us is that salvation is by grace. Salvation is by grace. There are three very surprising people and our story today, very surprising. Number one is the centurion soldier. Would you be surprised to know that the only person in the book of Mark to call Jesus the son of God is this centurion who was at his death? That's pretty remarkable, don't you think? He was a Gentile. He was a Roman. He was a pagan. He's a racial outsider, a moral outsider, and a religious outsider. And yet, he's the only one. He's the only one who correctly identifies Jesus in the entire story. That surprising person, number one. Number two, the second surprising group of people is the women as we mentioned earlier. Now, they are right beside Jesus 
throughout his ministry and also throughout all of these three huge events that Christianity rises or falls upon. They're right there with him. They're at his death, at his burial, and at his resurrection. Women were gender outsiders. They are societal outsiders. And yet, they are the very first proclaimers of the gospel to the outside world. Pretty surprising. Number three surprising group here is Joseph of Arimathea himself and Nicodemus. Nicodemus is included in John's telling of the burial story. Now, these two guys, Joseph and Nicodemus, are total insiders. Total insiders, okay? They're men, not women. They're Bible-believing Jews, not pagan Romans. They're prominent and wealthy, not poor, okay? They're the very definition of insiders. Okay, so what's the point? The point is all three groups are in Jesus' kingdom. All three groups are saved. What does that mean? Well, here's what it means. It means your race, your gender, your status, your wealth, your sins, and your upbringing are all completely irrelevant to your salvation. They're completely irrelevant. They don't matter a lick towards your salvation. Jesus died for everyone. He died for everyone. Absolutely everyone. Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, red and yellow, black and white. Now, speaking of Nicodemus, Jesus made this point radically clear to him. You see, Nicodemus had an amazing encounter with Jesus in the middle of the night. Where Jesus told him, Nicodemus, who is one of the most moral and influential leaders in the world, okay? He's one of the most influential people, religious leaders in the entire world, okay, at this time. And Jesus looked at Nicodemus and said, you must be born again to be saved. Do you know how radical that is? He's looking at one of the most moral people on earth. (laughs) And Jesus is saying, yeah, that's not going to cut it. That's not going to cut it. You must be born again. Of course, Nicodemus got a little hot and bothered by that. He's like, now, wait a minute, Jesus. I'm a pretty good fella. I'm a pretty good guy, you know. I mean, I get it that, you know, prostitutes and drunks, yeah, they need to be born again. Sure. But me? Me. I've been trying my whole life to live according to the Bible. Born again? Can I at least start as a toddler? Can I at least start as a preteen? Why do I need to be born again? Can I just start somewhere in the middle? And Jesus says, no, you cannot. You cannot. 
prostitutes and priests, beggars and kings. All must be born again. Why? Because all have the same problem. We're sinners. We're sinners. We have rebelled against our creator since the moment the doctor slapped our fannies. And therefore, we can only be saved by radical, relentless, scandalous grace. There's an old quote that I love. I use it all the time. It says, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. <laughs> the cross is the great leveler of men. You see, at the foot of the cross, we are all equally sinful and equally loved. God doesn't save us by our pedigree or our moral achievements. Nope. He saves us by the blood of his son. Period. The cross is the great leveler. So, if you're here today and you think your sins are too terrible for you to be saved, lift your head up this morning in Christ. And if you're here today and you think you've achieved a lot in this life, you think you're a pretty darn good moral person, pretty darn righteous, if that's you, deflate that big head here this morning in Christ. For the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The pagans, the women, and the religious elites all found in our story this morning, and they are all saved by grace. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That brings us to our last point in your outline. The third thing the burial story of Jesus teaches us is that grace is world-changing. Grace is world-changing. Let's look at verses 43 and then 46. Verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Verse 46, so Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now, it took great courage for Joseph to ask Pilate for the body of Jesus. Great courage. John 19 sheds a little more light on this, explaining that Joseph was very afraid. He was very afraid to do this. Well, duh. Think about it. Joseph is about to go to the man who executed Jesus and tell him that he's a follower of Jesus and would like the body. Okay? That takes courage. <laughs> that takes courage. And yet our text here says that he went boldly to Pilate. Boldly. Oh, but that's not all. Another remarkable fact that we just read in verse 46, and John 19 adds, 
that it was both Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus who brought Jesus' body off of the cross and prepared his body for burial. It was both Joseph and Nicodemus who did that. Now, why is that significant? Well, Jews did not embalm the dead like Egyptians did. Instead, they took spices and wrapped the body in spices and linen cloth. Okay? And so it wasn't embalming. It was an act of love. That's what this was. It's an act of love. It's the last intimate, caring, and loving thing you can do for a loved one. But it was, quite frankly, a nasty thing to do. It was. I mean, after all, it is a dead body. And you can only imagine how nasty it would be to do this to someone who's just been crucified. Okay? It's loving, but it's gruesome. This is a gruesome thing to do. So, who would do this typically? Well, it would be slaves and women. Slaves and women. Respectable men? Never. <laughs> never. You would never find a man doing this. Ever. Especially not respectable men. Like Joseph and Nicodemus. So, what we see in this story is incredible. It's incredible. Joseph and Nicodemus don't say to the women, you do this and we'll watch. No. They do it. They get Jesus' body from the cross. They wrap him in spices and in linen. They do the act of a slave. This is the most masculine and the most feminine thing these two men have ever done in their lives. It's the most bold and the most humble they've ever been. Of course, the question is, why? Why would these two extremely elite leaders... Men do such a thing. Why would they do this? Because that's what grace does. That is the effect that grace has. The gospel of grace gives us more boldness and more humility than we ever could have otherwise. What do I mean? Well, let's think together. If I believe that my standing with God is based on my behavior, it's based on my efforts and my achievements, then when I achieve a lot, I feel bold, but not humble. Not humble. And when I fail to achieve what I wanted, I feel humble, but not bold. Not bold. But... What if, what if my standing before God has nothing to do with my behavior, nothing to do with my moral achievements, nothing to do with my good works, but instead has everything to do with Jesus' good works? 
What if in Christ I am completely and permanently accepted by God? Permanently. There's nothing I can do to affect it one way or the other. If that's true, then whether I'm a prostitute or a preacher, whether I'm a beggar or a king, I am free. I'm free. For the first time in my life, I'm free. I'm free. I'm free from striving to earn the approval of men, and I'm free from striving to earn the approval of God because I already have it completely in Jesus. That means I'm free. (laughs) I'm free. I can drop that heavy burden and for the very first time actually serve my neighbor for their sake instead of mine. Because I have nothing to gain and nothing to lose. I'm free. I'm free. This is the power of the gospel of grace. This is the power. Every other system of thought, every other understanding of identity, every other culture, every other religion is more or less self-salvation. It's self-salvation. I check the boxes, I follow the rules, I take the steps, and then I'm accepted. All systems of thought are that way except for the gospel. The gospel says, I can't check the boxes. I can't follow the rules. I can't take the steps, but Jesus can and did in my place. And he just showers me with his righteousness for free. For free. And now God looks at me as if I indeed have the perfect righteousness of his son. It's ludicrous. It's scandalous. It's the gospel. I'm accepted by that board right there. I'm accepted by what Jesus did, not by what I do. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the message that changed the world and continues to change it. This is how the gospel has changed our individual lives and how it it has radically changed the whole world. What started with just a few fishermen and a backwoods preacher In just a few hundred years, Christianity took over the entire Roman Empire. Why? Well, it's because a bunch of free people, saved by grace, were running around preaching good news and serving their neighbors, even at tremendous cost to themselves. Why? Because they're free. They're free. They're not scared of the Romans. They don't care what people think about them. And we're scared of the emperor, they're free. Because that's what grace does. <laughs> the gospel of grace sets you free. You no longer have to try to get your worth and your value from your career or your bank account or from your friends at school or from your spouse or from your kids. Your life has been given infinite value and worth through the precious blood of the Lamb. God died 
for you. Did you hear me? Did you hear what I just said? God died for you. That gives your life infinite value and worth. And so who cares what people think about you? You have the acceptance and the approval of the only person that matters. Your creator, Jesus Christ. Which makes you bold and humble at the same time. Just as we see it did with Joseph and Nicodemus. It, make, it made them bold and humble at the same time. And it's only the gospel that can do this. It's only the gospel. This is the effect of grace. It's what grace does. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Joseph and Nicodemus are men of power. Men of great power. And the big problem with every society is that most people with power don't want to share it. They don't want to share it. Because to share it means you might jeopardize it. You might lose it. And so these two men have power, and the text is clear that, yes, they are afraid. And they have been afraid during Jesus' ministry. They have been secret disciples of Jesus. They're secret disciples. They're keeping it on the down low. Is that even a phrase anymore, down low? They're keeping their love for Jesus on the down low. Why? Because they're afraid of losing their power. They're afraid of losing their high position. So they do have great affection for Jesus, but they're keeping it a secret because they're afraid of what men will think of them. And they're afraid of losing their power. But at Jesus' burial, they throw caution to the wind. They go up and grab Jesus' body off of the cross. Showing everyone where their true allegiance lies. They're willing to lose everything, even their own lives. Why? Because something's changed. Something's changed. What is that something? Well, those two men have just witnessed the most powerful person in the universe give all his power away. They've just watched it. They just watched Jesus be mocked and laughed at and spit upon and beaten and whipped and crucified and just taken. Not saying a word. Just take it. He willingly laid down all of his power for them and for you and for me. And love like that, 
grace like that, that, my friends, will change you. That'll change you. When Jesus' love and grace really hit your heart, it forever changes the way you look at your neighbor. It forever changes the way you look in the mirror. And it forever changes the way you look at God. He goes from being an angry judge to your loving father. One who gives his life to save you. That's what grace does. It gives you boldness and humility and freedom. That's what our gospel does. The hymn writer says, How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. But to see the law by love fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice transformed a slave into a child and duty into choice. 